Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, calling in from Amsterdam. How are you today, Alan? I'm doing very well. Excited for another episode and some fun things. I actually just finished watching one of my favorite watch-related video series, Talking Watches. Oh, cool. On Hadinki? Yes. Um, that's actually one of my favorite uh, videos, uh, and they were one of the first to interview collectors, which I always love to hear why people collect watches, what's their story, and what did they actually collect and why, and the stories behind the watches. And um, this was the episode with Jean Arnaud. He's uh, one of the five children of the owner of LVMH, and he actually runs the watch division for the brand Louis Vuitton. Um, and I, was, I knew he was very passionate. But I was actually positively surprised how much he knew, how deep his passion run. And he actually had a very cool collection. So I kind of highly recommend that episode. How are you, Rob? I'm good, thanks, man. Yeah, I haven't seen that episode of Talking Watches yet, but I will watch it. I do like the production values of that content stream myself. So that'll be a nice one to put on my to-watch list. I have been mining through our questions and I have found some pretty good ones for us today. The first one actually will go to you, and it is from one of our many Chris's. As we mentioned in a previous episode, we have so many Chris's. We have Chris's coming out of our ears, and it's uh, a running joke now. I think I might start calling every guest Chris, even though uh, even though that doesn't really do justice to the people that are writing us these questions. But this is definitely from a Chris, and he says, Alon, as a retailer with watches, how many brands do you want in your store? Do the big groups force you to carry their smaller and less popular brands for you to have the big brands? Do they have rules like if you have other brands, you can't have this brand or that brand, for example? Is there some kind of clash between the big dogs like Richemont and LVMH? So an interesting multi-part question there, Alon, and something I think that our listeners would really like to get a better view of. So why don't you take it away? Okay, thank you, Chris. Awesome question. Um, I think I can fill the whole episode just answering these uh, multi-pronged questions that all relate to retail and being an authorized dealer. So maybe very quick for the listeners that don't know me or don't know the family-owned, family-run business, Ace Jewelers, and maybe all the differences in retail. So very quick. Um, in the watch world, originally you had brands, wholesalers, retailers that sell to end consumers. Those dealers that buy from the brands, either straight from a brand or through a subsidiary or a wholesaler or an agent, are called authorized dealers, often abbreviated to AD. So then you had, back in the day, the auction houses where you could sell pre-owned, pre-loved watches. Obviously, you had vintage dealers, antique dealers, then pre-owned dealers. With the surge of uh, internet and eBay, you had new platforms to sell watches. Usually, these are referred to as gray market dealers because gray is the color in between black and white. Black is either stolen, counterfeited, or fake. And white is often labeled, sold through an authorized channel, like NAD or nowadays straight from the brand. As brands are verticalizing and doing direct to consumer with their own monobrand boutiques or their own websites. So, gray 
means you're buying an authentic product, new or pre-owned, but not straight from the official source. At Ace Jewelers, we started back in 75. We've always been ADs, authorized dealers. And we always traded in watches as a service because back in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have any other outlet if an auction wouldn't accept your watch because usually auctions want high-end pieces because they take a commission on the sale, right? So they need a minimum of a sale price to make it profitable to hold that auction. So we've always dabbled in, nowadays they call it CPO, Certified Pre-Owned. Um, back in the day, it was occasion in French or Dutch. Um, and just in plain language, it's second hand. Um, we do both. We also started doing collabs, which is a lot of fun. So at Ace Jewelers, we are kind of hybrid. Um, we started Ecom back in 2007. We were granted the first dealerships by the brands to sell online back in 2007. Sounds crazy today, right? Because Ecom is very common and maybe a primary source channel to obtain your watches and definitely to get your information online uh, or like this podcast. But back in the day, authorized dealers and jewelers fulfilled all these tasks that podcasts, blogs, magazines do today, right? Um, so our business is literally built around having product, but more importantly is gaining and sharing the knowledge about what you're selling and sharing the passion. And that's the DNA of what we do today. Since our dad and both my brother and I, who are proudly owners, 50-50 of Ace Jewelers, since 2012 already, and we both work since 98 in the family business on a full-time basis, we are watch nerds, two generations already in Amsterdam. So we love what we do, and we love watches. We also do fine jewelry. We actually started as Diamantes and selling fine jewelry, so natural diamonds, precious metals, gold and platinum. Um, so we always seek out stuff that we love. Now, we do sell watches that I personally wouldn't buy, but that doesn't mean I don't stand behind it when I sell. We are very opinionated. That means we won't ever sell a watch as an AD or even pre-owned. If we don't think it's good quality or it's a cat in the bag, meaning it's a, it's a lemon, let's say, like in a car business, you say you sell lemons, right? That, that it's just simply not good enough. So that's the minimum for us. That being said, we would love to sell many more brands as an AD or as a CPO dealer, but simply can't obtain them. So we are not Patek and Rolex dealers, for example because we simply can't get the dealership. And worldwide, you see a diminishing trend of ADs out there because brands are taking away the dealerships. Um, so less and less dealers because they're fulfilling that themselves. They're selling more and more themselves. So there's a verticalization going on. Um, so 
Would I like more brands? Hell yes. And we do retail. For example, those brands that I just mentioned, Patek, Rolex as a CPO dealer, but also there, there is a lack of supply, right? So I can't get everything that I would like to have. How big is your store? Today, we have one point of sale. We used to have three. Ecom, we started back in 2007. So more than 15 years, that grew tremendously. With that, plus the whole drama around COVID, we were able to downsize to just one point of sale, one boutique, physical high street store with 100 square meters. Retail space and an additional 100 off the sales area with back offices in an atelier. All right, so you have 100 square meters of retail space. How many brands do you have in there? Because you have your jewelry as well, of course, right? Yeah. So I never know the number by heart, but give and take very quickly, around 15 watch brands as an authorized dealer, which we are reducing and we are losing brands and jewelry around 10. And then pre-owned, I don't count in quantity of brands. It's usually how much SKUs do you have in stock? So on average, we always have around 1,500 watches in stock and jewelry even more, maybe. Okay, okay. So of those roughly 15 brands, how many of them roughly, again, are part of big groups like Richemont or Swatch Group or LVMH? This question was never even up for discussion a decade ago, 15 years ago, but with the groups came politics and pressure. And Chris also refers to that because he already insinuates that brands forced to carry smaller or less popular brands. And I, I will prolong that question and taking it into they, them demanding you buying collections from a brand, right? So um, what you often see is with CPO dealers, they cherry pick, they just sell the wanted models. But we use the Pareto rule, the Pareto effect of 80-20 rule, that often only 20% of a collection really rotates and 80% is dead weight, let's say. Um, so the disadvantage of being an AD is that they expect you to buy almost everything or at least have a curated a stock that touch upon all the collections they make. But as a retailer, you don't often want that. Some collections are not made for the European market where we're based, or simply we think they're fugly. Pardon my French. Can you give us an example of a collection, say, by a brand like Omega that you don't think is really focused on the European market and might actually just be kept around for the Asian market? On average, we could say case size below 29 millimeters are not really for the European or Western markets. They're targeted at the Far East. And because simply the physiques of those citizens are smaller, the lengths and wrist sizes are smaller. So these watches are made smaller. Um, that's an example. And if you really want me to zoom in on Omega, so Omega, the constellations, which they make a ton of in small case sizes, are not for us. Or sometimes now green and burgundy or coral are in fashion. But a few years ago, nobody wanted these dials anymore. So they were very much made for either, uh, I call them Arabian markets, so Middle East markets, and for Asian markets, because that color there really resonates with them and has mythical powers, let's say. 
So that's an example of um, specifications or collections that are really made for particular markets. But we can also twist it around and say, hey, in Northwestern Europe, we're very much sports orientated. So sports watches really, really outperform. So to zoom in on Omega again, if you would like, the Seamaster and Speedmaster collections are number one in Northwestern Europe. Whereas in Asia, for example, Constellation is number one. So it's very interesting to see. But as a brand, they obviously expect you to put a representative collection out. And now let's look just at sheer numbers. Omega is one of the most versatile luxury brands out there for in the watch sector. They not only have, well, they have technically four collections, but there are many sub subsidiary collections, sub-collections. And they have so many iterations of every model. Their retailer catalog, so we have a handbook, let's say, and, and today on, on our website, you can see everything. If you look at how many SKUs, so um, references, let's say, it's gigantic. It's impossible to have them on stock. Even the biggest Omega boutique in the world, the Monobrand boutique, doesn't even have all of them. So that it's always a, a juggling act, let's say. What do you buy and what don't you buy? How do you appease and please a brand? And now to zoom in um, about brands in, within a group, do they demand? It used to be a little bit like that. Nowadays, they simply can't supply, right? And they want less dealers. So let's take Richemont, for example. There's only one brand there that nobody wants. And I'm saying this a bit in quote-unquote, yeah, a bit sarcastically, which is Baume Mercier. I love the brand. I really think that brands deserves more, and I, I, you and I discussed that on air. Do you really love the brand? Yes. I have really? a vintage piece. We sold it, yeah. We, I, I'm, I'm dead serious. Okay. I have a vintage piece. I've owned many bones. We sold it as a retailer for over almost two decades. Um, the designers that they had back in the day were exceptional amazing and and i think that's one of the 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 downsides of being part of a big group is they're they're confined to their little golden cage cage if i need to use a metaphor so they're stuck in this golden cage they can only move in the parameters that are set out for them but that little bird can fly any direction and there's a lot of creativity there there's a quality there there's knowledge there there's heritage there but they're just cost to decide so but what they do is let's hypothetically assume you come to Richemont and say hey I want Cartier Jean Le Coult and a Panard dealer it could be that I don't know what market in the world there still have blind spots or white spots on their retail map but let's say hypothetically in 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 uh, a land that doesn't exist um, they're opening their market as fresh they will tell you, yeah, you can get them, but we want you to take Beaumachet. Those things used to happen. I don't know if they happen today because the luxury market is on fire in a positive sense that still demand is higher than supply. So not for Beaumachet, uh, but, but for the majority of Richemont brands, they are. So they don't need to, enforce these these in Dutch we say couple so linked sales yeah so package deals let's say 
Um, to continue, I'm looking at Chris's question. So, uh, do they have rules? Like, brands you can't have, can have? Yeah, so, me, uh, another example, which is interesting, maybe that might answer a question Chris has. So, we had three points of sale. We had an e-com account, so we had four locations with Ace. Today, we still have the e-com location. If you open up in the same city or a different city or a different country, doesn't mean automatically that you get the brands in that new point of sale or location if you have them in your primary or your flagship location. Um, the reverse is happening right now. So let's take Wempy, for example. Amazing independent retailer from Germany have a global footprint already for two, three decades. Um, London boutique, Paris, Madrid, New York, etc. But even they, and they are Rolex and Patek dealers for almost a century, are losing dealerships. In London, they lost the Patek dealership on Bond Street, and they decided to close that whole point of sale. They lost a Patek in Spain. Uh, but on the other hand, they did open in, I believe, Munich, a huge Patek Philippe flagship boutique. So the markets are shifting. Uh, demand is shifting both from buyers, consumers, and also the brands. So everything is in, in flux. Um, and maybe to round up that question, because I don't want to take all this episode to answer this question, is... We always sold independence because we started off with that question, groups or independence. Back in the day, that wasn't that relevant. Uh, but because these groups do work very uh, forceful, I don't know if that's the right word in this context, but they're very demanding in everything they do. The independents are more fun, more agile, more flexible, less demanding, more eager to work together. <coughs> Sorry. They, we always had independence. Take Nomos, for example. We actually closed the deal. I didn't even tell you this, uh, Rob, because we didn't have time. Yesterday, I closed the deal with Nevada Grenchen, um, with our, our friend, sexy boy, Guillaume. So, and, and that was born actually because of this podcast. Because there was mutual respect. There was, uh, we got to know each other. We hung out. And there is a, a common kinship and way of thinking. And then things grow out of that, right? And that's how it used to be in the industry. And it's funny that those that collectors that are listening that know of the co-signed dials on watches. So let's say you can still find Rolex watches with Cartier on the dial. New collectors get all confused about that. But Cartier used to be a retailer. They sold jewelry, not their watches yet. So they would buy watches. They were dealers of Rolex. And back in the day, retailers were more powerful than brands. So in the beginning of the 20th century, you would even see high-end manufacturers produce watches for retailers, and it only bears the name of the retailer on the dial. Then they became co-signed, and obviously brands became stronger and stronger, and that disappeared. Uh, the, the, the Neo co-signed vibe is the collabs we see right now today, right? All these collaborations with either retailers or bloggers or famous other brands. That is basically a reinvention of how it used to be. And a fun fact for those of you that have seen Tiffany sign dials on Patek Philippe's, 
Tiffany is now today known as the king of engagement rings. But back in the day, it was a jeweler. And they sold lamps, silver, silverware, jewelry. And they were watch dealers. They only started making their watches themselves, I believe, two, three, four decades ago. And they were one of the first Patek Philippe dealers in the U.S. And that partnership is still alive. There are only two boutiques of Tiffany in the world that still hold the dealership for Patek Philippe, stock the watches, their ADs, and are allowed to co-sign the dial locally, which is New York Fifth Avenue and San Francisco. I don't remember the street name. Um, so that's a fun fact that retailers were always important for watch dealers. And I, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir, are still a firm believer that us independent multi-brand retailers have added value, not only because of after sales, service, watch straps, but also knowledge, passion, and simply just compare watches, have them in stock, come in, have a coffee, glass of beer, champagne, wine, whatever, hang out, have fun, do some retail therapy, and compare products because the downside of monobrands is you can only compare within a brand. You can't compare multiple brands. So I think that's a downside of monobrand boutiques. Did I speak too much, Rob? No, not at all. I thought it was fascinating. And I thought you put together a really nice world for us to step into. You know, you built up a good a good narrative there and um, answered the question bit by bit. And I was uh, very rapt listening to you. And in fact, I have a follow-up question. So we'll we'll just leave the mailbag to one side at the moment. I'm curious because... One of the things I really liked about your answer was how you reminded us all that before the days of watch media, which online began in, I guess, 2004 with Fratello's foundation and then followed up by a blog to read that became a blog to watch in, I think, 2007 and then Hodinkee in 2008, you guys were the biggest resource of current and possibly historical watch knowledge available to would-be buyers. So that was fascinating and something that people should maybe remember and also like value in your local AD. Now, it isn't necessarily the case that you will find the same level of knowledge that you'd find at Ace Jewelers um, uh, on every high street store. That isn't true because a lot of stores don't have the same level of professionalism up and down the staffing tree, but find a good one, stick by it, support them because as you said right at the very end there, having the opportunity to compare brands to one another side by side is absolutely absolutely invaluable when it comes to making an informed decision. And on that topic, I'd like to know just some anecdotal cases perhaps when someone has come into your store looking for a particular model and thanks to your expertise and the pieces that you have available for them to compare and contrast alongside the model they were searching, has gone away with a different piece. Could you tell us maybe what you've seen people move over from and what they moved over to? Sure thing. So I, I want to also make a little disclaimer. So I said we're very opinionated what we stock, right? And we not per se buy and therefore only sell what my brother and I and our dad like. Um, but as a good retailer and and. I call it a luxury consultant because you consult is a good consultant, doesn't push. It asks questions, many questions. You try to get to know the person that is in front of you. Often people that walk in from the street, we've never met them. They might not know us and don't know what we're capable of. 
because we're still a high street boutique and we still have a lot of walk-ins just without an appointment. The key is to get the them as quick as possible and profile them, let's say, and with that info, advise them what watch or piece of jewel suits them and their lifestyle. It's not about what I think. I will only blend in personal opinion only and if they ask me. So that's a little disclaimer. So when people come in, and you'll be surprised, a lot of people, consumers today, think that um, 90-95% of people contacting a jeweler or a boutique, a watch boutique, already know what they want. Over half walk in our store, or digitally or physically, and say, hey, I'm looking for a watch. It literally starts with that. And then our game starts. Hey, do you have something in mind? Do you have a particular brand that speaks to you? What do you demand from a watch? Meaning, does it need to be waterproof? Does it need sports, metal brace, a leather brace? Or what occasion are you going to wear it? And I often ask them, what do you already have? Not so much to uh, weigh them into a class of, do they have money? Don't they have money? Are they a watch nerd, not a watch nerd? But more to say, if they already have a sports watch with a black dial, a diver on a steel bracelet, I'm less inclined to recommend them another piece like that, right? And one of the questions might be, but I usually prefer not to ask, is what budget do they have in mind, right? And that's not meant to, again, weigh them up, to scale them in what kind of consumer it is, but more to say, if somebody comes in for a budget of about 1,000 euros, I don't want to bother that person with a 10,000 euro watch because I'm basically going to offend that consumer. It's disrespectful almost to say, hey, your 1,000 is not enough, let's say. So. Um, that being said, at the other half, things they know already what they want. And of that half, half often pivots. So an example, I said in Northwestern Europe and for Holland, it's the same case for men and also a lot of women, they want a versatile watch, meaning often waterproof. We're skewed to casual in the Netherlands, denim capital of the world, right? Amsterdam. So a lot of jeans, a lot of sneakers. So we skew to sporty. So we have Omega, we have Tudor, we have Zenith. Um, even with the Nomos, we outperform with Tangente, but also the club. And that surprises Nomos, for example. So it's a relatively sporty watch within the Nomos collection. Besides, that's the entry price point. Because think about it, for 1400 you have a manufacturer amazing watch. Um, but <clears throat> so they'll come in, oh, I want an Omega Seamaster 300M diver, right? Or hey, I want a Tudor Black Bay, or I want the Zenit Defy, or um, we used to have Breitling recently, we lost that. So a lot of sports brands, and they come in with maybe a preconceived notion, and today we have more and more certified pre-owned Rolexes in stock, so we literally can compare in a broader choice. And it's funny that when you ask them the question what they actually expect from a watch, one of the questions also Hey, do you want bragging rights or not? Because in Northwestern Europe, there are a lot of heists and, and, and thieves and theft, especially on Rolex and only Rolex and a little bit of Piquet, Roy Oaks. So we have a lot of trade-ins on Rolex now and they pivot to lesser known brands and the undercover brands. And, um, so, 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 and you learn those things by asking questions. So one of the questions is, hey, do you want bragging rights when you're with your mates or in a pub or at work? Or do you want the opposite? 
Another question is if somebody comes in for a dress watch and they want a precious metal watch, most of them come in with a notion to buy pink gold or yellow gold. And when we ask the right questions, they say, oh, no, 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 I need to fly under the radar, radar, and they'll pivot to white gold or platinum, right? So that's why I say I do believe we definitely have a added value and a role to play in the coming decades. Well, absolutely. I think that you do. I think that you do. Um, did you give us an example there of, of someone switching from one watch you showed them to another? It happens so often that you go from a Submariner to an Omega Seamaster 300, or you go from a Tudor, you come in for a Tudor, and they'll say, you know what, I do like the Aqua Racer, although I thought it was less quality. Or uh, you hardly see the upgrade or downgrade from the Rolex to Tudor, funnily enough, although they belong to the same group and they share DNA, right? Um, uh, the funny thing is a Breitling consumer won't buy an Omega so much. Um, so, but, but, but you'll see that in, in the, and it also depends on the budget. So um, you see psychological uh, glass ceilings, uh, let's say up to a thousand, thousand to three, three and five becomes uh, murky waters, but five to 10 and above 10 is a different ball game, different ball game in the psyche of a consumer. Uh, you can buy different brands. A lot of brands don't produce anymore under a 10, 8K anymore. So it could be that they aspire the brand and simply can't purchase it right now. And you won't believe how often I tell people when they're close to that bracket, I simply send them away and say, don't buy your B choice because you're not in love enough. Go save up more money and come back. So I'm that honest in my feedback and advice as a luxury consultant. That's a brilliant answer. And I'm really glad to hear that you do actually send people away and wait until they've got enough money to buy what they really want. Because that makes all the difference. You know, you have to be in love with what you're buying if you're buying for the reasons that we do. And this segues quite nicely into the next question, which at this rate will be the last question we ask in this show. And that's totally fine. Of course, this is from uh, Jacques. And he asked this question in a direct message on IG. And he says, I find this fascinating. I thought it was a really timely question. He says, what's happening with the sudden widening gulf in primary and secondary market prices? We've seen the secondary market, and by that he means like pre-owned or pre-loved or whatever you want to call it, collapse in recent months. But MSRPs, so manufacturer suggested retail prices, are skyrocketing. Is the age of investment over. Now, I like the term the age of investment. That's something we should probably cherry pick and use in the future. But what he's asking there is, has the time of buying a watch at a reasonable retail and expecting it to not just hold its value, but maybe increase due to a lack of supply over? What do you think, Alon? Interesting. So there's a lot to dissect there. Um, you know, you know, and some of our listeners know that I have an allergy on the word investment linked to watches. I love investments. I do invest, not so much in watches, um, but I do have to be realistic. I, I think that the last five years, watches kind of been an, become an asset class. And with assets comes volatility, meaning up and down of pricing. Um, but as a retailer, I always sell, say that I don't sell investments. When you come in, I treat you as a consumer and buy something 
with your heart and not your mind, and therefore not with your wallet. Buy it because you love it. It could go up. It definitely will go down. Always. And wear it because it makes you happy. And if you want to buy investments, go to a stock exchange. That's why I usually say, okay? Now, we're selling more and more artisanal pieces. Let's say a Funderklau. We we sell amazing planetarium watches that are customized to the particular taste of the consumer. And then I do have a fiduciary obligation to point out what could happen to pricing. And that often is downwards, not upwards. Could go upwards. But I, I do honestly warn them. So I do take it into account because we're talking about watches that are at least five figures and they often go to six figures. Um, yesterday I sent you a pick rob of a big red Daytona we got in a 62, 63. That watch today is already six figures. So I'm already getting scared, right? Because when it came out, that watch in the 60, 70s, it was below four digits and maybe just about four digits. So um, there is a lot of hot air in that balloon and I warn buyers. I'm like, buy it because you love it and you want it because it's a very steep price. So even as a CPO dealer, I'm actually calming down buyers instead of hyping the piece and getting them riled up to buy it. So, and then the second part of Jacques' question, which is very interesting, actually, which you and I discussed in length during Watches and Wonders, is maybe the biggest shock was how steep prices are becoming for new watches, right? So this MRSP or RRP, recommended retail price, is often the price brands position a watch at and they expect their retailers and their own boutiques to maintain that price when they sell it to an end consumer. The one that, that shook me up is I've always been a huge IWC engineer fan. Oh, yeah. The original SL by Gerald Genta, I believe 76. And I've owned many 2000 versions. So I believe it's the reference 3227, but could be wrong. Um, I didn't like the last decade of engineers so much, although they were also inspired by a 60s version of the engineer. Um, I was super excited when I saw the first glimpse of today's iteration of the engineer made by um, Christian Knoop. But then I heard the price. And I fell off my chair because I believe the stainless steel version is around 12K and the titanium goes around 16. And the first question I asked out loud is why? Because the caliber is maybe upgraded from a Salita Ita to a Valfleurier, which is like a kind of an Richemont-ish Ita setup, which they produce calibers for their subsidiaries, so the brands within Richemont. And it has a soft iron cage to make it amagnetic. But the first thing I did in my mind is say, hey, specs-wise, it's not so much different than a Mark 20 IWC Pilot with a soft iron cage, same caliber on a steel bracelet. So obviously, maybe the engineer has more detailing, but I don't think it justifies the steep increase in price out of the blue. 
So that was a vivid example I have on my mind that causes also immediately to say, hey, look how reasonable Tudor is, for example. They technically could ask way more for their watches because let's be realistic. That price that IWC is asking has nothing to do with more quality. It's simply because they can or they think they can. And I think the reason is they see other integrated bracelet models with or without a Gerogenta heritage simply fetching more, both at MSRP and also on the secondary markets. And I think they're just permitting themselves to do literally a tacky money grab. Sorry, I had to be said. So maybe you want to jump in here, Rob, and deal with both parts of the question. Fantastic answer, and thank you for shining such a bright light on IWC's, I would say, misbehavior with the engineer. Because I've never been a huge IWC fan, as you know, and when I generally go to the brand, I go there for pilot watches and nothing else. But the new engineer really caught my eye when we were at Watches of Wonders, and I loved the presentation. I thought the, the stand that they have, or the booth, or the walk-in display hall, whatever you want to call it, was really, really good, and the sort of teal green dial was an absolute diamond, but the price is just stupid. Like, it's just puts you off not just the watch, but the entire brand. You just sort of blow your cheeks out and think, oh, well, forget it. You know, this is this brand has, like, lost touch with what it takes to attract a new customer to it. Now, I think that existing IWC fanatics will still buy the piece, and I think it will probably do well. And if it's available, which I'm sure plenty of them will be at that price, a lot of people that can't get other integrated steel bracelet watches like a Streamliner or a Chappacantatique, for example, will flock to it just so they can spend their money that's burning a hole in their pocket. But Jacques' question is fascinating. And it is, like I said, very timely because we did notice that some pieces are just getting crazily expensive to, you know, entry-level pieces for a brand. They're no longer anything like what you would call an entry-level price you have to suddenly shell out two or three times as much as you expect to just to get in the front door. And I think that's a real shame. We're also seeing it from like small independents and we can't ignore like even brands that we adore like Chapek since the Antarctic exploded in popularity. The price has gone up and up and up. I think when the Antarctic debuted in 2020, it was about 17,200 excluding taxes. And now I believe the standard one is around 22 which is, I think, okay, fair market value for what it is, but that is an increase of 5K, which is almost like a 30% increase on the original price in a couple of years. Now, that does show uh, the huge demand that Chapek has experienced for that piece and also the investment the brand is making behind the scenes in growing the company and internalizing as many steps of the production process as they can so they can provide a much improved customer experience but it's a fact of life. The new skeletonized Antarctique that we blind revealed on the show with Ben Lee, otherwise known as Ink Dial. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out. And while you're at it, give us five stars and a nice review if you don't mind on whatever platform you're listening. That piece is 36,000 francs, I think. Or, well, mid-30s. And that's a lot of money. It's not, again, unreasonable for the work that they've done with it. But we're seeing that, like, even brands in that luxury segment are creeping up their prices. It isn't always to say, and I want to be clear about this, that the prices aren't reflected in the quality of the product or the 
progress of the brand. And it's not to say that the pieces aren't worth it. It's just worth noting that we've seen retail prices go up in a time when secondary market prices have actually collapsed and seem to be going down even further. You know, when I bought my Snoopy uh, 50th anniversary Speedmaster, it was 9,600 euros. Obviously, you don't get a liquor discount on something like that because it's still highly demanded around the world. When I bought it, I think it was maybe March last year, so about a year ago, these pieces were trading for 35,000 euros on the secondary market. These were unworn pieces that someone had just gone and picked up from their local AD and stuck on Corona 24 immediately. And once you sold that and you get the sales fees deducted from Corona 24, you're still looking at a profit of around 20k easily in an afternoon's work. And people were going nuts for it and people were buying them hand over fist at crazy inflated prices. If you go on Chrono 24 today and you look for the same model, they can now be had for under 20,000. And that's the, that's the list price. That's what the secondary market is listing them at. And they probably sell for a little below that because if you go into a conversation with a seller and you ask, oh, will you take 17, for example, they'll probably go, yeah, okay, fine. I want it, I want it gone because the market is only going one way. People are scared. And it's really falling down and down and down. And recently, you and I both um, were lucky enough to uh, buy the hands from second second for the Air Jordan uh, <laughs> experience. And so we had to source Rolex Air King 5500s because we bought the hands for the watch. And all we needed to do was find the watch to complete the package. Easier said than done in the old days, but it's getting easier to get them at a good price. I noticed that in the time that I've been looking for one, and I haven't been able to get one yet, although you have, the price has actually gone down. And it used to be the case, and I'm talking a year or two years ago, that if you sat on your hands for a moment, the price would jump up. And there was this fear, this almost FOMO, secondary market, not necessarily missing out on the piece, but missing out on a price that we would say in those days, it will never see that price point again. You know, once that watch goes past the five or the 10K barrier or the 30K barrier, it's gone. It's, it's, it's unobtainium. It's rarer than a hen's teeth. You're going to have to pay through your nose and sign off your firstborn child and cut off your arm if you want one. Turned out it wasn't true. Like the bottom has dropped out of that secondary market at the moment, and we only can speculate when we're going to reach the very floor. Now, there was a slight bump again in Rolex prices after they dropped drastically at the back end of last year. They did start to perk up a little bit again, but that isn't true across the board. Some people point to some models and say, oh, look, that's proof that um, Rolex is recovering at least. The secondary market is having new life breathed into it, but it isn't actually exclusive. So you can now go get a Rolex Oyster Date Precision, for example, an old manual wine model from like 60s and 70s. In fact, I think it was produced well into the 80s. It was one of the longest tenured models in Rolex's catalog. Lovely little watch. I had one myself at one time. I sold mine for about 3000 a year or two, no, a year ago, just before the crash. And now... And I thought, geez, I'm never going to be able to buy that watch back for 3000 when I've got some ready cash in my hand. And now you can get a bunch of them in box fresh condition almost for 2527 all over the world. And that's just, that's really, really interesting. So certain parts of the collection are still suppressed. But taking Rolex as an example to talk about Jack's question, the perfect example of like a, a price point going crazy is the entry point for a Rolex Submariner. Now, an Oyster Perpetual is still around five or 6,000 euros to buy in, which although it's a lot for a simple time-only watch, it is actually not that crazy. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, for 
a watch that you can buy and wear for the rest of your life. It's not a bad price. But a sub, like you're talking 10K for a sub now. And that's just preposterous. Like 10 years ago, when I was training to be a watchmaker, subs were sitting in dealer windows at 3,000. And you could get them for, with discount if you walked in and asked nicely. You could walk in and buy a Hulk, probably get 10% off it without even having to ask. And now, the retail price on these things is just crazy. Now, I ask you this, Elon. You've got a lot of experience in this. Do you think that brands are doing this to attack the secondary market deliberately? Do you think they're doing it to protect their initial product and ensuring that it will only be sold to somebody that will keep it? Because you obviously now, you don't want to buy... There aren't many watches you would buy at retail and then immediately flip. Of course, if you can get a Tiffany Blue, and I say that in inverted commas and my tongue-in-cheek, Oyster Perpetual 36 for 5950 you can sell it for 35000 tomorrow, but good luck getting one. But what do you think about that? Is this a strategy on a brand's part, or is it, is it something that's happening naturally? Let me respond to that OP36 Tiffany Blue. It's funny that you said that, but the 35 is long gone. We recently sold one for 15 and a half, but that's also idiotic if you think about it because retail is what six seven i don't even know yeah it's six under six yeah so even that's idiotic but okay let's keep that aside right now so to answer your specific question if they're doing it to protect the brand no they don't so rolex doesn't i kind of dare so let's take idbc again and many like them yeah it's not just idbc but a lot of brands are doing it as a money grab. They just see a potential to amp up their margins. And I think it's a short-term strategy. And the funny thing is, it's not strange that it's the big groups, because I always jokingly say, and kind of mean it, that it's run by Excel managers in a denigrating way, and not passionate people that have a long-term vision to protect the brand. So... I don't think they do it out of a long-term strategy and a vision to protect the brand. If you really think about who does, it's Philip Stern. We discussed this, I think, many times on air, on this show. Why would you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, right? The, 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 the Nautilus 5711. He does that because he says Patek has never been a one-model brand. We never, ever want to be. Their strategy has always been, we produce every reference and X amount of years, and we always kill that model. Why? Because every Patek has to be special and kind of limited. That strategy, that's vision, not run by shareholders' value, and I wouldn't even call it stakeholders' value. It's simply just protecting the brand. And I think that's vision, and it takes guts and balls. Now... Um, Rolex, I kind of find that they do also have that strategy. They keep their heads cool. Although I did ask what mushrooms they ate while making the day-day puzzle and the OP bubbles, which I, for the record, both love. I'm happy that they did it. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that after you finish your answer, because I do want, I do want to just have a little discussion about those two pieces, but please carry on. Yeah. So, but, but. It's an exception to the rule that they do only evolution, although I can beg the differ that they've made crazy pieces back in the day, so it's kind of going back to their roots, but um, and experimenting with colors and designs and the technique of art. But 
Um, the, what we can argue, and we, we also discussed this on air, their CPO program Rolex is an answer to what's happening in the secondary market. That is an answer. Talking about answers and long-term vision, let's talk about Audemars Piquet for a second. We didn't discuss this on air yet. News from that brand, two, three weeks ago, just before Watches Wonder, just after, they announced that they are now offering an additional service with every new sold Audemars Piquet watch, which is a insurance policy gifted to the owner, I believe up to 50K, but I saw somewhere something written about 50K. I have to admit, I didn't read the fine print of their policy, but that shows that they're listening to the market because as I said earlier, in Northern Western Europe, the watches that are getting jacked are all Rolexes and just Royal Oaks. But since Ademar Piquet is almost a one model brand, not completely, but almost, and this we have discussed also in length on this show, uh, which is criticism on my end and also Philip Stern's mind. I do think that's it's a smart move. So they're moving with the trend of time and the pulse of time and they're listening to their buyers. Um, does Ademar Piquet raise their prices drastically because they can? Hell yes. They're also doing it for shareholders' value, although it's an independent company and family-owned still. Um, but I think they do it because they can. Do they do it to protect the secondary market? I think it's the opposite, Rob. I think it's uh, inflationary. It, it, it even gives buyers of secondhand pieces the fuel to light their fire to say, hey, you see, if I buy this, it's going to go up. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many buyers that buy up to double retail, you know what their analogy is when they buy from me? I ask them, why are you willing to pay more than double? So the answer, those that are smart with money, which is for me a legitimate reason, the only reason why I would ever pay above list, retail price, RRP, is they say, hey, if the RRP goes up at the hands of the brands by average 5 to 10% every year, I don't want to wait 10 years for Daytona. I'll pay double. But the problem with Daytonas is they go triple four times the price, right? But to pay, let's say that OP36 Tiffany that you love so much, we know it's going to be discontinued or it's already discontinued. I actually don't know, but I think it's discontinued, right, Rob? No, no, it's still it's still around actually, which is all the more stupid. I know that the 35k days seem to be passed in terms of actual sale value, but they're still listed at that on Chrono 24 right now, right now. Madness. And okay. it's available in the catalog, supposedly. Okay. okay, okay. All right, fair point. So, but you know they're not going to be there 10 years from now. So if the waiting list is 10 years and you utterly love that watch, I would also pay double because I love that watch. I'm not buying it as investment. I know I'm actually going to get burnt on that watch, right? But that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not scared or sad to lose money on a watch. And that's the idiocy, in my humble opinion, that on cars, whatever price point, 10K, 50K, 100K, 1 million, every car owner knows and is willing to lose money on its car. Or at least the, the, the cost of use, right? The write-off and 
and the, the wear and tear on a car. But why aren't we willing to accept our watches anymore? And that's something that bothers me and worries me. It bothers me and worries me as well, because as you rightly said before and has have said many times, watches should be bought with the heart and not the head, and they shouldn't be an asset class, even though as you correctly identified they have become in the last 10 years or so. And it is shocking to me. I bought that Glassator Regnale chronograph, you know, the I can never remember what it's called, considering it cost me 14k, I should probably remember his name, but it's one of the most expensive watches that I own. And I saved up for it and I bought it and I knew that it wasn't going to make me a lot of money if I ever had to sell it. It might not lose a huge amount because it's limited and it's very special, but it wasn't going to make me money. And I didn't care. Like I wanted that watch. I remember yesterday, or I think it was yesterday. Of course, I remember yesterday. My memory's not that bad. Um, so I remember a long time ago yesterday when I was searching on Chrono 24 for that exact watch to see what it was trending at. Because when I bought it, I think in October or something like that, you could not get one of these on Chrono for less than 30k. And that's a pretty, it was a pretty standard secondary market price for these special colored dials of this 1970s chronograph that Glasser Regnal produces 100 pieces of in each color every year, never to be produced again. Now, that model, the one I've got, is maybe trading at 15, which is only 800 euros more than what I paid for it. But while I was looking at this, doing my research, I scrolled past the exact model I have. So it's the orange dial, the vibing orange dial on the black rubber strap. And I, I opened it thinking to myself, God, that's a gorgeous watch. I would love to own one of those. And then I realized, oh, I do own one of those. Oh, it was definitely worth, it was definitely worth the money I paid for it because I bought it with my heart. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm so excited about that you said that. I want to jump in. So if that watch was a thousand less, two thousand less, maybe half. Would you love it still as much? Yeah, of course. I Amazing. mean, like the price actually, the funny thing is <laughs> the price is not, okay, this is going to sound, I don't want it to sound like completely dismissive of how much money that is because it was a lot of money for me as well. It's not like it's a drop in the ocean. I'm not sitting on big piles of of money like Scrooge McDuck or anything. I, I mean, it, it, it was... A... I thought you did. I thought that's why we're friends. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively modest, although I have to admit <laughs> that was an extravagant, <laughs> extravagant purchase. But the money was not a thing either in terms of what it was materially, like what it could be used for otherwise, or what it maybe means the watch represents. It was merely just a stage of the acquisition process that I had to pass through to be the owner of the watch that I loved. So if the watch was 800 euros, I would have bought it because I love it. And that would be a hell of a price for a beautiful German movement, you know, finished to such high standards with a 24 karat gold. Right away, that'd be amazing. But if it were okay, if there, obviously there's a point where I wouldn't have been able to afford it. And that point is not too far beyond what it was that I paid for it. But let's say it was 18,000. I would have tried to get to 18,000 to acquire it because it's what I wanted. Like the money, and I, I feel like this with every major purchase I've ever made in my life, like when I bought my house, the deposit on the house at the time was 17,500. And that was the most money in those days that I'd ever spent in one day. And I went into the mortgage brokers and I handed over my card 
and they debited all almost all of the money I had. So seventeen and a half thousand for the deposit, and then a bunch of like fees and you know all sorts of other bits and bobs that came out. So in the end, I was like twenty grand lighter than I was when I walked in. But I didn't think about it at all. Like money to me, having money is a privilege, but it isn't my goal. It's like it's a means to an end. It's just a mechanism of exchange, and so. What I want was the watch. The watch is special. Money is not. Yeah, amazing. And I'm happy to hear that. So I wanted also to say two things before you gave this beautiful essay, which is a beautiful note to end on. And I, I'll, I'll say two things and shut up. Is It is a hobby. And I always say, guys, remember, us watch collectors, it's a hobby. Hobbies cost money. Watch collecting is one of the best hobbies out there because the write-off is relatively very low to compare to all other hobbies. And the second thing I wanted to say, if we do accept that watches are an asset class, which I don't want to, but maybe I just have to accept reality that they have become one. If that's the case, I'm saying to all investors out there, you could have both hats on if you want. It's fine. I don't care. But then don't cry if prices come down because that's the ball game you're playing. Sometimes you win. Sometime you lose. I mean, I want to end there, but I also do want to spend, <laughs> right? Just a couple of minutes while we're on the topic, and because we brought it up, talking about those two Rolexes, okay? You know the one I mean? The celebration yes. dial, it's called. The one with all the little bubbles on it, on the Oyster Perpetual. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it when you make that sound, but I, I'm not sure I could make that sound in regards to that watch. We'll get to in a second. And the other one, is the Jigsaw Day Date, which is a bit of a misnomer because it's not really a day date. It's an emoji message watch. I don't know what to call it. Okay, okay, okay. Oyster Perpetual with the bubbly dial. Is it a yay or a nay for you? For me, immediate yay. I was actually um, flying to Geneva when they uploaded it early in the morning, Rolex on their website. I got literally bubbly and I didn't drink champagne that morning and I got excited. It was a yes for me. Why? I love colors. I'm like, hey, it's out of the box. It's not so much in Rolex's DNA, although they've done colors and crazy stuff. Um, but I liked it. And I was by coincidence sitting next to a buddy of mine who is a Rolex AD. So I said, if you can. Get me, please, a 31 and a 36 for my son and daughter. I want to buy this. So my initial reaction, I didn't ask how much does it cost. I don't know how much it cost. We didn't talk about discount, list price, above list price. You know, nowadays, all the Rolex dealers, they do these, these package deals. So you need to buy jewelry to get a Rolex, or you need to buy another brand that doesn't sell to be eligible to buy a Rolex and all this rubbish. I didn't even go into these details. I said, hey, if you can... Is this a limited? Is it a one-off? Is it a... Nobody knows. Rolex doesn't say how long they'll produce it. They technically don't make limited editions, right? So they sometimes do anniversary models, but you don't know how long they'll stay in the collection. They never announce that. Um, so for me, it was a yay. Um, I liked also the philosophy behind it because they took all the other, uh, in brackets, Stella-ish colored dials, and all the bubbles represent the other dial colors on top of the Tiffany bluish one. I didn't order them because I think it's a I think it's going to be a hype piece and hype beast watch, which I hate. It's not because of that. 
and I didn't order one for me, right? At 41. It's, it's not for me. It's for my kids. I think it's fun. It's bubbly. It's crazy. I always like these oddities in the collection. So why do I have a Milgauss? Because I love that green glass and that electric bolt seconds hands. Air King, the modern one, is crazy. I have the current one with the crown guards and the one before that. And obviously, you just said you and I bought a vintage 5500. Always loved Air Kings. I like the quirky minute tracks on the Dow. Always attracted me. Hence, and this is a little shout out, make sure to keep an eye on Elka Watch Company because they do something cool with minute tracks and uh, have the honor to work with him. But to be continued. Um, and, and, and that's why that watch falls into my category. I still have a dated on my wish list. And the puzzle jigsaw puzzle piece, which is done by hand and the emojis is fun. That's a bridge too far for my personal taste. Am I happy that Rolex did it? Yes. Bit of fun, bit of craziness. Why not? So what do you think, Rob? Well, I'm glad that you sort of saved yourself and my respect for you with the second opinion <laughs> of the jigsaw. Um, the bubbly dial. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I think it's a bit stupid. I think it's really like, <laughs> it's the kind of idea that I think whoever came up with it thinks is a lot better than it actually is. And if they'd been in a design brief with me, I probably would have said something against it. But I do concede I would have been probably a little too conservative. And it's okay. It's fun. It's a nod to the other colors. I get it. I think it looks like a mess. I think it's a good watch for kids. If the kids are completely loaded, like, you know, I don't know, like, when you expect your children to wear that, but that's pretty baller, I would say, for children. Um, the jigsaw, though, that's fully shite. And it really is just boggling to my mind that people are falling all over it as if it's, uh, you know, oh, that's just what we were waiting for Rolex to do. Look, I get that in principle, we want Rolex to be a bit more creative, but we don't want them to completely lose the plot and blow up the brand and do stupid stuff. Like, I mean, is it fun? Um, actually, no, I almost find it insulting um, to the whole brand and even slightly to the industry, because I think it's a bit of the emperor's new clothes in my mind. Like the day date. Oh my God. What a watch. What a classic. What a majestic object. One of the finest designs in the history of product design. In yellow gold, it is almost peerless, in my opinion. I think it is one of those watches that every collector should at least try to own or wear somehow at some point in their collecting career. And I hope to myself one day. It is sacrosanct. I don't even like it when they get too fruity with the dial designs. I think like it's just too perfect to be messed around with. Okay, the OP, that's a bit of a playground, maybe. And I, I was I was even skeptical of the colored dials when they came out, you know, the yellow and the red, and even the Tiffany blue, um, which I know isn't Tiffany blue, it's turquoise or whatever, but you know what people call it. Um, and I was proven wrong. I, I proved myself wrong because I came round to them. Just yesterday on my Chrono 24 search, I was looking and lusting after the yellow one, which had never appealed to me before, but it's such a beautiful shade of yellow and it's so clean and it's so simple and it's so precise. Maybe in time I'll come around to the bubbly one and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's pretty good. But the jigsaw, no, just no. Like how many, how many TikTokers, how many bloggers 
will we believe? You know, I, I just think like that, 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 that listening to each other is an echo chamber. Going, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, it's really cool. It's funny. It's funky. It's brilliant. I'm like, will you buy one? Like, will you buy one? Is it a good product? Tell me that. I want to jump in. It's interesting that you said, because I heard more negative than positive. And the funny thing is our dear friends at Fratello, at a certain point, were pushing for a few days that they really thought it was a uh, April Fool's joke. Whereas the watch was launched on the 27th of March. So why would it be an April Fool's joke on the 27th of March? But the the analogy was, hey, we can't find it on the website, la, 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 la. Yeah. So therefore, it might be a joke. I'm still not convinced that it isn't. I'm still hoping that it is because it isn't on the website. That's a very good point. Why isn't it on the website? Why? So, so the analogy goes now that it's only either for collectors or custom bespoke or it's just for the super collectors. But because the analogy doesn't fly, the the Eastern Arabic numerals, so the Hindi writing, right, are not on the website either. But all the Middle Eastern dealers can order them. Uh, there are many Rolexes that are not in the catalog that still can be made especially the jeweled piece. So that analogy doesn't fly. What I regret is two things. But three things. They should have done it with Romaric, our dear friend Romaric Andre. Rolex should have just made the emoji discs either with Romaric. And I think that if Sakon Sakon did it, so a Romaric Andre is Sakon Sakon. If he would have done it, it would have been even better. And what I don't understand, well, they, they never do really collabs. Right, they did used to make watches for other brands or royalties or whatever, but nowadays we don't see co-signed products anymore for a long time. Such a shame. Yeah, although you they do for gifting, but never for commercial purposes. Anyways, I'm drifting off. Um, they, they, I would have split the two. So I understand they used the dated canvas because what Rolex today in the collection has so much real estate to do creative stuff on it. They have a date disc and a day disc, right? So it's logical they did that. But why the puzzles and the emojis? I would have split the two. I would have made two different funny things because there's a lot of artisanal work in those puzzles. But what I think they dropped the ball on is they didn't explain why they did it. Usually art doesn't need an explanation or philosophy, right? Same with second second. You either get it or you don't. So you either love it or hate it, and that's fine. There's no middle ground, and that's okay. But with the day, this jigsaw puzzle day date, I heard more negative than positive. Interesting. I certainly was in the other camp because I just heard people like rolling their eyes back in ecstasy and proclaiming it to be like the funniest and most joyful thing ever. And I think you hit the, you hit the nail on the head with your correct identification that Rolex's failure was communication here. Because, unlike art, and what Second Second does can be typified as art, uh-huh. unlike that, this is a product first and foremost. And it's a product that exists within a product ecosystem. It's a product that exists within a well-established catalog. And in that particular case, it's a product that has an incredible history and a heritage. And I don't want to get too preachy about it, to be honest. And I know that, like, to me, watchmaking is next to godliness, and to other people, it might just be a hobby, and they might think, oh, God, this guy's been on the mushrooms again. What's he talking about? It really matters to me. Like, it really, really does. Like, it, you know that I am genuinely passionate about this industry, and I'm not in it 
for money or status or even acquiring like the holy grails of watchmaking. I'm in it for the things that make me feel something. And this made me feel something really bad because of how I feel about the day date yellow gold with like a champagne dial. How, how funny is that, right? So this is lovely how you and I are, have a lot of similarities, same passions. And here we're literally at the opposite ends of the spectrum. So I also love day dates and I have, I had one with my stupid, stupid, stupid head. I let it go. 36 white gold, a flush bezel, not fluted Oof. on an oyster white gold bracelet. Oh, oh black watch. dial. That is a sharp I'm watch. such an idiot. Such an idiot. I let that go. I always wanted the Hebrew version, obviously. Very difficult to find, but I know you can customize them. And um, what you said, a yellow gold, just the, the, the presidential fluted bezel, yellow gold, 36, even on a champagne dial. Let's go crazy. Like the gold dial. That's the way to go. I agree with you. And I have a deep sentiment for it because all my relatives in New York in the 80s all rocked that day date. All of them. Ladies, men, it was an engagement gift, a wedding gift, a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah gift. They were all rock these. So that's instilled in my mind. Um, so, but you know what, Rob? We can go on for hours. Um, I actually maybe want to ask our listeners, do you guys and ladies want Rob and I to do one Q&A episode and discuss all the Rolex novelties? Because you and I didn't touch upon the 1908. I'm very curious what you think of the 1908. So the Cellini, the new one. We didn't talk about that. We, we could fill a whole episode about the Daytona. We didn't even talk about that on the show. All right. Okay, deal. Let's so, do it. If the community wants it, we'll do it and we'll make it our next episode because that'll be a fun buzz through that catalog because it got a lot of updates this time around. It was quite a full fare. And and then we didn't talk about the Titanium Yachtmaster. Okay, okay. Keep a lid on it. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. We said we were going to do a short show. We ended up spending... Well over an hour going crazy on a couple of questions. Thank you for sending them in. If you'd like to send some more questions our way, you can do so either via direct messages or comments on Instagram. You can find me there at Rob Nuds. That's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon is there at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can contact us via email. That's Rob at the realtime.show or Alon at the realtime.show. Or you can contact us on our contact form on the website, which is found at www.therealtime.show. Please like, subscribe, leave us a five-star review and say some nice things in the comments if you don't mind. Thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking.